Father, it is an awesome thing to to know that you make it well with our souls. Through the ups and the downs, the burdens and the struggles of life, Father, help us to know anew the presence of your Spirit with us so that we can truly declare it well with our souls. As we gather today, there are all kinds of issues in our lives and, and in this world that burden us and weigh heavily upon us. We think about people who are grieving today. We pray especially for Mike Jordan and his family at the death of his grandmother. Kay Lindley for years is a part of this community and this church. Thank you for her life. May your, your gracious presence be with this family. For others who are grieving today for a variety of reasons, may each one know your comforting presence. Father, we pray for all who are struggling with health issues today. We pray for Leighton Saniseth, Elaine Geens. Michelle Russell, Florence Tuber, Rosalind Danner, 
Isabella Doherty, Tim Nichols, Bob Brown, Louise Princell, Hudson Hess, Nancy Cole, Brian Orbacher, Peter Lingenfelter, Chuck Barrett, Cheryl O'Brien, Ben King, Doris Asepian, Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, for Bill Getty and Ella Woolsey, Mike Raybuck, Beverett, for Micah Christensen, Linda Roth, Emily Cricklar, and others who are on our hearts today, and we pray for your healing grace upon each of them. Father, we thank you for the ministries of this church. In a few moments, we're going to hear about Valley Preschool. I want to thank you for the opportunity to reach out to our young children and their families through this ministry. We pray that it will continue to help our children have a sense of who you are and of your grace to them. We pray, Father, for churches around us. Today we pray for the Belfast Free Methodist Church, Pastor Calvin Smith. Your blessing be upon this gathering of believers as they worship you and serve you. May their influence be be fruitful for your kingdom. When we think of our world, think of your church around the world. There are many places and throughout the world and numerous continents where where people are traveling from villages and towns to show in the local language editions the Jesus film. And during this Easter season, it, it seems to carry even more power. We pray that the fruit that is born from these showings will not only be large, but deep, lifelong. We pray for our brothers and sisters who serve through, live and and worship throughout the world, who face opposition and persecution for their faith in you. Give them courage and strength, protection, and may their witness, may their witness be true to who you are. Father, we pray for refugees throughout the world, millions of them, and for all who are involved helping them. Whatever their circumstances that may have precipitated their need to flee, we pray that they will know your everlasting love and may you help them to know your grace upon them. We pray, Father, for our nation. We pray especially for the leaders of our nation in, in the capital, in, for the state, our county, all of the leaders. We pray that you will give wisdom to know your desires. And Father, we pray that you will continue to bless our worship. Give our hearts that are sensitive to you and open to you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who comes in human flesh, who goes to the cross, rises from the dead, ascends to be with you, and is promised to reappear, ushering in your great kingdom. It's in his name that we offer our prayers. Amen. Good morning. 
Valley Nursery School was started in the fall of 1968 in what was known as the Rec Hall, which had been the village church building until 1934. I was a charter member as the youngest student that year, and perhaps ever, that year being 68, not 34. (laughs) Early on in its history, the school moved to the Christian Education Building here at Houghton Wesleyan Church. From the beginning, children from this congregation and the surrounding area attended together, setting the tone for the school to be both a ministry and an outreach. Today, Valley Preschool continues to meet on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings from 9 to 11.45 from September through May, serving three-, four-, and five-year-olds in the area. Our enrollment varies from year to year, but we typically have just over 20 children. Valley Preschool is one of the ministries of our church that happens a bit off the radar because of when we meet. Even though it's a ministry totaling more hours each week while in session than many others, our congregation rarely gets to see us in operation as you are working, attending school, and fulfilling your own callings in various ways during our school day. With that in mind, I wanted to take this opportunity to show you a glimpse of our activities through pictures, share some general information, and thank you for the ways in which you help me have my dream job. Despite the fact that most of you rarely see what we do unless it's a stage of, you're in a stage of life when your children or grandchildren are attending VPS, this church family has faithfully supported the Ministry of Valley Preschool through giving to our scholarship fund at multiple Christmas Eve services, paying the director's salary, and budgeting funds for us to use if, during a given year, our enrollment falls below levels needed to pay our staff. With the hope of increasing our visibility to this congregation and the surrounding communities, and wanting to offer help to all of our families in the face of rapidly increasing costs, we took an annual activity we do with the children to a new level by holding our first-ever community-wide stone soup dinner. After much praying, learning, planning, and support from the VPS committee, I felt everything coming together and hoped that we would have at least 100 people and make between $400 and $800 beyond breaking even, enough to offset rising tuition costs by a couple of dollars per month per student. Because of our VPS families donating the vegetables for the soup, our expenses were only $354.79. On the night of the dinner, we served around 200 people and took in $1,862.79. I want whomever donated the 79 cents to know it helped us end with an even dollar amount profit of $1,508. Even though it will again cost us more per child next year to cover salaries, we should have enough funds available that we won't have to pass that cost along to those who can't afford the increase. We're so thankful to God and to all those who donated to help make this fundraiser a success and a blessing to area families. Most of our annual activities are my favorite, but I think my very favorite is our Easter celebration. For weeks now, we have been learning about Jesus going around doing good and showing he cares about us and can help people when they are hungry, scared, sick, sinful, and in every type of need. Each year on the Monday before our Easter break, I tell the whole Easter story from the Last Supper straight through the resurrection. There really are no good stopping places. This approximately 20 minutes is the longest we ask the children to sit and listen in one stretch. 
Almost without fail, they give their undivided attention as the events unfold. The next preschool day, we remember each segment of the story with our own Stations of the Cross Easter party. We wash their feet, remember the Last Supper, pray together in the church sign garden or the prayer room, practice reverence as we look at the cross here in the sanctuary, Think about how the cool and dark of the church basement can remind us of the tomb and then burst forth into the light and sometimes sunshine of the outside. Please pray with me and my staff as we prepare for and communicate this story of God's love for these little ones in the coming weeks. There may be ways you can take part in this ministry. Please feel free to talk with me about opportunities during the remainder of this year or next year as we celebrate our 50th year. Student applications for the fall will be available in the coming weeks. I am always happy to talk with people about Valley Preschool. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 26, verses 47 through 56. Would you please stand with me for the gospel reading? This is Matthew 26, 47 through 56. Hear the word of the Lord. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword and drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place. Jesus said to him, For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. It is uh, great to see each of you as uh, we gather for worship today. Let me invite you to uh, take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship as well.
What is it that causes you to be afraid? Now, you might right off the bat say nothing. There's really no fears that I have, but maybe you have a different word for it. Maybe it's concern, worry, anxiety. Those things that nag at you in the back of your mind, those things when you're doing mundane tasks, vacuuming, mowing, that flash into your mind. Those things that may keep you up at night. Maybe it has to do with your future. I don't know what the next step's going to be. Things aren't coming together like, I wish, like I'm hoping. Maybe it's uh, the, the, the classwork that you need to do. Maybe it's something about your job. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's something in your family. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your health. There are all kinds of things in life that, that cause, bring pause to us and, and cause us to feel a sense of, of worry and fear. And I think there's a fear deep in our souls that we probably don't think about that much. Maybe every so often in the quiet moments of life we think about it, but I think there is a fear that we wrestle with. And it's a fear-related to God. It seems odd to think that we would have fears related to God, but there is something in the human spirit that worries a little bit that if I commit myself to God, what's he going to ask me to do? What do I have to give up? Where do I have to go that I don't want to go? Where am I going to be prevented from going that I want to go? I have to... I, I have to change everything. And and the fear of what God may ask us to do, I think is real. It certainly is for the disciples of Jesus. In in the passage we read this morning, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just as Jesus is arrested right before he goes to the cross. And and in in this event... When the soldiers and the, and the people come to arrest Jesus, the disciples, their, their fear, fears rise to the surface and they start swinging swords. And Jesus says, no, 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 I am here for this very purpose. The fact that I, I, have, I am here to surrender myself to death. I am here to give myself away. That's my purpose. And when the disciples understand that, Matthew tells us they run. It's not the first time Jesus has talked about going to the cross. Not the first time he's talked about the fact that he comes to die. He's told them this many times. The difference is that was theory and this is reality. That was just talking. This is doing. There is a big difference between theory and reality. I find that to be true when I do premarital counseling with people. You spend a number of sessions talking about all the different things that are related to marriage. 
communication and, you know, all these different things. And, and the whole time you're talking about it, the couple's sitting there just shaking their head going, yeah, you're right, we get that. Yes, 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 we get that. And, and, and they, they think they do. But sometimes they don't. And I found, I learned a few years ago, a number of years ago, that one of the best things I can do in premarital counseling, and so I've instituted this, is that I always reserve a couple of sessions to do postmarital counseling. So a month or so after the wedding, I call them up and say, hey, let's get together like I told you we were going to. And we sit down and talk. And it's fascinating to me how the conversations are very different. Oh, you're married or laughing. I can see that. It is the difference between theory and reality. And we try our best to experience the, the theory and to understand it. But you simply can't really grasp it until it's reality. And the disciples have been trying to, to understand all this theory that Jesus has been throwing at them. And now in the garden, they come face to face with reality. And the fear overwhelms them and they run. This is real. Jesus is really going to do this. There's a story that Matthew relates in chapter 16. Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And and they say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, some people Elijah, some people Jeremiah, other different prophets through the years. And then Jesus turns to them and says, okay, that's great, but who do you say that I am? And Peter raises his hand and says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus says, my father revealed that to you, Peter. And the the parenthetical thing that you read into the text is, because you never could have thought of that on your own, is my father revealed that to you. And it's on that truth that my church will be built and nothing will be able to destroy it. And from that point on, Jesus starts talking about the cross. And after he talks about the cross a few minutes, Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, you got to stop talking like this. Don't be saying those kinds of things, Jesus. Heaven forbid. Lord, that's never going to happen to you. And Jesus says, why do you think I came? And Dennis Kinlaw says... They understood his personage. They just couldn't accept his purpose. They they get the fact, they believe that he is the son of God. They believe as much as they can that he is the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for all these years. They can grasp that mentally. But when it comes down to really understanding how he's going to live that out, how he's going to communicate that, how he's going to accomplish the purposes that God sent him to do. They simply can't grasp that it means surrender and death and ultimately a cross. And I think we wrestle with the same thing. I mean, we, we love the fact that there is a cross and that what that means for our sins. The struggle we have is remembering And I think the disciples are, after they run in the garden, they hear echoing in their mind Jesus' words, take up your cross and follow me. I think that when you stand in the shadow of the cross, when the the shadow of the cross falls on us, 
we begin to understand that the definition of discipleship is surrender. The definition of discipleship is is death to ourselves. It's abandonment to God. It's allegiance to Jesus the King. Matthew Bates in his book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, makes the case that when we tend to talk about faith, we mean by that, I believe something. And while that's important, that's not really the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is acknowledging that Jesus is the king and our lives are his. That we give allegiance to the king, not only with our minds, but with every part of our being, including what we do, how we live, how we act. Our attitudes, our perspectives, our actions. It is all done as as people who give allegiance to Jesus the king. That's what it means to be a Christian. Because when you read the Gospels, Jesus rarely, if ever, says, believe in me. What he says is, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. And to be a Christian is not, to, is not just to believe in the right things, as important as that is. It is to give our lives in allegiance To Jesus the King. And when we struggle to see that that's what discipleship is. That that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When we struggle, we fail to really grasp that. And to embrace that. Our fears have a tendency to tempt us to fight for Jesus. Instead of surrendering to Jesus. And that's what you see with the disciples in the garden. They're ready to fight for Jesus. They're swinging swords. They're ready to stand up for Jesus. But when it comes to the calling of Jesus on their lives to surrender and to to give allegiance to him and to God, the fears become too much and they run. One of the things that that I'm concerned about in, in how a lot of, how the church, maybe it's just, the loudest voices in the church, but it concerns me that a lot of what I hear coming out of of people in the the church feels to me like very self-serving kinds of things. We we want society to treat us well. We want people to, to, to back off of us. We want to have all of our rights. We want to be able to say what we want to say and do whatever we want to do. And I understand that because I want that too. But the call of the gospel is not to be self-serving, but to be self-giving, self-sacrificing. And there is, there, there is a truth in standing up for what is right. But I find when I read the scriptures, most of the time, it is standing up for what is right because of what's happening to other people, more than it is standing up for what's right because of what's happening to us. And it goes against the grain of everything in my being because I want to stand up for what's right for me. And then you stand in the shadow of the cross and you hear and you see and you understand that Jesus is calling us to let go. It's not as if we don't have weapons to fight. 
I mean, the church has lots of weapons to fight. And, and we actually have become pretty good at wielding those weapons. The weapons of power, the weapons of wealth, the weapons of our tongues, the weapons of, of influence. We have, in a sense, we have all the same weapons that everybody else does. And, and the reason we're tempted to use them is because, quite frankly, when you look at it, it seems like they work. But the question is, do they really work? Because when you stand in the shadow of the cross, like the disciples who want to wave swords in the garden and who have weapons to, to wield, when you stand in the shadow of the cross, we understand that the way to make the greatest influence in the world is not to use those weapons, but to use the weapons of Jesus, of surrender and allegiance and loyalty and love and truth. And the cross. Jesus says to his disciples, don't you know, I could ask my father and he would send legions and legions of angels to save us. I could do that in a moment. I can hear the disciples going, this might be a good time. But Jesus said, if I did that, then I could not fulfill the purpose that the scriptures have laid out from the beginning for why I'm here. And the implication is why you're here. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in The Cost of Discipleship, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. And thus it begins. And notice he says, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. For when Christ calls someone, he bids us come and die. It's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We sometimes have a struggle getting that. And I find every so often there are people who are not Christians who see it more clearly than we do. I, I heard about a man who was a, an atheist about 30, 40 years ago who uh, wrote an autobiography. He's here in America. And uh, he was a pretty well-known atheist at the time and and he tells in that autobiography about going through a couple of times in his life when he was especially, especially difficult times. Painful, struggling, not sure where to go, what to do. And he says, in the second, in the second year, the second time that happened, he said, I came to the place where I almost prayed. I almost got down on my knees, he said. And he said, because I believe to pray is to get down on your knees. I find that fascinating description of his understanding of prayer, that there is a sense of surrender. He said, I almost prayed. He said, I, I believe that if I had done that, I probably would have gotten up a different person. Maybe I would have gotten up a better person than I am. He said, I probably would have. But he said, ultimately, I decided not to do that. And he said, I'm glad. 
Because I have a suspicion that when I got up from my knees, I would have lost me. And the person telling this story said, that's one of the most profound theological statements I've ever read. He understood, but we sometimes don't. That when you come to God, when you, when you give yourself to God, you're surrendering to Him. It's yours. And the reason we struggle with that, I'm convinced, is because we have a skewed view of God. Something in the back of our mind says, God is the enemy. And the evil one keeps putting those thoughts into our heads. That's what he did to Adam and Eve. That's what he's done to people through the centuries. Everything about our lives comes back, I think, to to our view of God. Our decisions come back to our view of God. Our attitudes come back to our view of God. Our actions come back to our view of God. Our belief system comes back to our view of God. Do we believe that God is who he says he is? The God who's revealed in the scriptures, we see so clearly in Jesus. Do we believe that this is God or is it something else? And until we believe that God is who he says he is, the kind of God who loves us so much that he would go to a cross, we will continue to default to those fears. Here's the thing about the cross. When you stand in the shadow of the cross, you feel this this call, this sense to surrender. It's really what the cross is about. And that feels like loss to us. But the reality is, in the shadow of the cross, we are putting ourselves right in the place of God's grace. Because the cross is about grace. The grace of God for you and for me. I find it so fascinating that when you think of, when you look up shadows and the way the word shadow is used, particularly in the Old Testament, you find passages like this. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of your wings. And Isaiah says, I put my words in your mouth, the words of God, and covered you with the shadow of my hand. I who set the heavens in place, who laid the foundations of the earth, and who say to Zion, you are my people. You're my people. And what feels like loss, what feels like death, is really our eternal refuge in the shadow of the cross. And maybe it sheds some new light on the the first verse of Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? If God is who he says he is, whom shall I fear? Maybe we say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. What shall I fear? And one translation says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. So why should I be afraid? Because it's God. It's God. 
I heard recently about a, a woman who was a, a distinguished violinist. She was at the top of her field, respected, greatly admired. And she was a committed Christian, had been for a number of years. And she said one day she had this sort of still, small voice of God say to her, I want you to give up your violin. Why don't you give me your violin? And she said, Lord, I gave you my violin years ago. He said, I know, but now I want you to give it up. Give it up. He said, well, now, Lord, you're talking about something else. She said, Lord, how can I do that? The violin's my life. And he said, yeah, I know. And she said, I wrestled with that decision. Lord, if you take away my violin, I'll have nothing left. And she struggled and struggled and wrestled. And she said, finally, I came to the place of saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'll give it up. And the person who was talking with her asked her, so when you did that, did anything happen? He said, she got this huge smile on her face. And she said, oh, yeah. She said, for the first time in my life, I was free. For the first time in my life, I owned my violin instead of my violin owning me. So I was free. He said, I had insured my hands for a great deal of money because I knew that if I lost the use of my hands, I'd have nothing left. And I lived in constant fear about my fingers. But from that moment on, I realized in surrendering my violin, I had traded fear for freedom. We think, we think that surrender is losing our lives. Jesus says surrender is finding your life. It's freedom. I suspect that every one of us has something. Something that God may be tapping us on the shoulder and saying, let me trade that fear for freedom. Father, we thank you for the cross. You know our struggles. Help us to see a new picture of you. So that we can experience the joy of trading our fear for your freedom. Through the grace of Christ. Amen. Please stand and sing with us.
before you now. I stand beside you. I'm all around you. Though you feel far away, I'm closer than your breath. I am with you.
the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.